You can't be any poorer than dead. It's a short story by Flannery O'Connor that ended up being chapter one of her novel, The Violent Bear It Away. And it's the story of this old man, Mason Tarwater, who raised his great nephew out in the country and tried to raise him as a Christian. The boy used to live with his uncle, his agnostic uncle, in the city, but Mason, his great uncle, took him out to live in the country to raise him as a Christian. And in the story, there's this dialogue between the two about what the old man wants to happen when he dies. All that Mason Tarwater wants is a proper Christian burial, and his great nephew doesn't care if he gets it. In her story, Flannery O'Connor describes this humorous conversation between the two about the old man's burial arrangements. And so one day, this old man, Mason Tarwater, actually climbs into this handmade coffin that he has made, and he has this conversation with his great nephew while he's laying down inside the coffin. Let me read a section of it to you. The pine box he had been sitting on was his uncle's coffin, but he didn't intend to use it. The old man was too heavy for a thin boy to hoist over the side of a box. And though old Tarwater had built it himself a few years before, he had said that if it wasn't feasible to get him into it when the time came, then to just put him in the hole as he was, only to be sure the hole was deep. He wanted it ten foot, he said, not just eight. He had worked on the box a long time, and when he finished it, he had scratched on the top, Mason Tarwater. With God. And he had climbed into it where it stood on the back porch and had lain there for some time, nothing showing but his stomach, which rose over the top like overleavened bread. The boy stood at the side of the box, studying him. This is the end of us all, the old man said with satisfaction, his gravel voice hearty in the coffin. It's too much of you for the box, the boy said. I'll have to sit on the lid or wait until you rot a little. Don't wait, old Tarwater had said. Listen, if it ain't feasible to use the box when the time comes, if you can't lift it or whatever, just get me in the hole. But I want it deep. I want it ten foot, not just eight. Ten. You can roll me to it if nothing else. I'll roll. Get two boards and set them down the steps and start me rolling and dig where I stop. And don't let me roll over until it's deep enough. Prop me with some bricks so I won't roll into it, and don't let the dogs nudge me over the edge before it's finished. You better pin up the dogs, he said. What if you die in bed, the boy asked. How am I going to get you down the stairs? I ain't going to die in bed, the old man said. As soon as I hear the summons, I'm going to run downstairs. I'll get as close to the door as I can. If I should get stuck up there, you'll have to roll me down the stairs, that's all. My Lord, the child said. Listen, the old man said, I never asked much of you. I've taken you and raised you and saved you from that jerk in town. And now all I'm asking in return is when I die to get me in the ground where the dead belong and set a cross over me to show I'm there. That's all in the world I'm asking you to do. I'll be doing good if I get you in the ground, the young boy said. I'll be too wore out to set up any cross. I ain't bothering with trifles. Trifles, his uncle hissed. You'll learn what a trifle is on the day those crosses are gathered. Burying the dead right may be the only honor you ever do yourself. I brought you out here to raise you a Christian. 
he hollered, and I'll be darned if you won't be one. If I don't have the strength to do it, the child said, watching him with careful detachment, I'll notify my uncle in town, and he can come out here and take care of you. He'll tend to you. The threads that restrained the old man's eyes thickened. He gripped both sides of the coffin and pushed forward as if he were going to drive it off the porch. He'd burn me, he said hoarsely. He'd have me cremated in an oven and scatter my ashes. Uncle, he said to me, you're a type that's almost extinct. He'd be willing to pay the undertaker to burn me to be able to scatter my ashes, he said. He don't believe in the resurrection. He don't believe in the last day. He don't believe in... The dead don't bother with particulars, the boy interrupted. The old man grabbed the front of the boy's overalls and pulled him up against the side of the box so that their faces were not two inches apart. The world was made for the dead. Think of all the dead there are, the old man said. And then, as if he had conceived the answer for all insolence, he said, there's a million times more dead than living And the dead are dead a million times longer than the living are alive. And he released the boy with a laugh. Well, after the old man dies, the young boy struggles with honoring his great uncle's wishes, but he doesn't grant them to him. Flannery continues her story. The white fog had eased through the yard and disappeared into the next bottom, and now the air was clear and blank. The dead are poor. The boy said, you can't be any poorer than dead. He'll have to take what he gets. Some people here today are perhaps like the young boy. You've been raised to believe in God, to believe that the Bible is true and that it's God's word. You've been raised to believe all the things that accompany life in the covenant community, life in the church But like the young boy, you don't believe it. You've heard it all, but you don't buy it. You've heard the gospel, you've heard about Jesus, but you're not buying it. And some people are here, and you're like the agnostic uncle in the story who lived in the city. And you have never had any interest in Jesus. You didn't grow up in the church, so you never bought any of it. But you're here today. In fact, you may have even been antagonistic against Jesus the gospel, and against Jesus. And then there are some people here like the old man Mason Tarwater. All of your hope is set on the resurrection. You believe in Jesus. You believe the gospel, and you can't wait to see Jesus. You can't wait to see Jesus because he really is your treasure. You prize him. You delight him. In him. He is your exceeding joy. And you can't wait to see him face to face so that you can glorify and enjoy him forever. And you don't care if you're buried eight feet or ten feet in the ground because you know that resurrection awaits you. In the story, you can't be any poorer than dead. The old man, Mason Tarwater, was captivated by his burial, by what would happen to him after death. His focus was on his burial and resurrection. And in the same way, we must be captivated by this too. As Christians, our hope and our focus should be on the hope of our resurrection with Jesus. And so the passage that we will look at today will actually address 
all of these and address all kinds, all of these three kinds of people that are here today. But contrary to what the boy said, you can't be any poorer than dead. The truth is that for Christians, we actually have a rich reward awaiting us when we die, namely Jesus. We look forward to the city that is to come. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to glorifying and enjoying the triune God for all of eternity. And we even get to enjoy him now. And so our big idea today is just simply this. Enjoy Jesus. We were made to enjoy God. And it's as we find ourselves enjoying him that we will then find ourselves doing the things that the preacher of Hebrews challenges us to do today. So look at Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of the gracious God that we serve. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want you to notice two things about the passage that we are looking at today. Number one, notice and keep an eye out for the corporate language that is used throughout these verses. And secondly, notice how the gospel, how enjoying Jesus should motivate us to action. You'll notice the corporate language all the way through this section with these words that the preacher uses. Us and we and you, the plural. While it's true that these are true for us as individuals, the emphasis in these verses is on the church community. The emphasis here is the church family, that we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. In fact, we're called brothers in verse 19. So there's this family theme here. I think too often we read verses 19 through 25 and we focus on how we as individual believers, as an individual son or daughter of God, we focus on how we as individuals can approach God. And that's true. We can. It's true for us individually, and we should be doing that. But the preacher of Hebrews wants us to see that we're a family. We're a gospel community. And as a gospel community, we have the confidence to enter the holy of holies. We have confidence to approach God's throne. We draw near to God as the church, as a church family, to enjoy him together. And that's the idea here behind drawing near with a true heart. We draw near to Jesus as the church with our affections, with our hearts. We draw near to Jesus because we love him, because we enjoy him. And so the whole church family has confidence to draw near to God and to enjoy being with him. Keep the context in mind. 
The Hebrews were being tempted to go back to the Mosaic sacrificial system. And what was it like under the Old Covenant? It was a whole lot of, don't you dare approach Yahweh. If you get too close, you'll die. That's the type of language under the Old Covenant. But because of Jesus, we have confidence to enter God's presence and to enjoy Him. To enter not behind some curtain that was put up in the tabernacle and the temple that would separate the worshipers from the Holy of Holies, but now Jesus' body is the curtain, the preacher says. And we enter in through Jesus to be with God and to enjoy Him. And so we have confidence to enter God's presence because of the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus washes away our sin. He, he washes away our evil conscience, our conscience that nags at us, tells us we haven't lived up, we haven't measured up. It washes us. But we also have confidence because Jesus is our high priest. And because he is our high priest, we can enter into God's presence with full assurance of faith, knowing that we have been cleansed by his blood. Just as the priest under the old covenant, remember, the priest would, would check out the worshiper and their sacrifices to make sure you're clean. You can go into the sanctuary, you can go into the temple courtyard, and you can offer a sacrifice and you can worship Yahweh. They were, they were looked over and checked over to make sure Jesus is our high priest and he has declared us clean once for all. And so all of us, confidently can approach God to enjoy Him together. But this isn't how many of us functionally live, is it? Notice that the preacher doesn't say that some family members can have confidence, like the so-called good son or the so-called good daughter. He doesn't say that some family members have access to God because of how they lived in the past week or month or year. He just says, brothers, we have confidence. And if you're like me, I tend to base my confidence of drawing near to God as one of his children by, well, by how well I have measured up the past few days. So I think that if I live according to some particular standard, then I can have confidence to enter God's presence and to enjoy him. And if I've failed to meet whatever standard that I or others have set, then I think well, I can't have confidence to approach Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that no matter how we have acted, we all have access to God and we all can enjoy Him. Now, what accounts for this too-good-to-be-true confidence? How can this be? How can it be that people who sin in thought, in word, in deed, in motive, how can it be said that we have objective confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies? How is it that we have a confidence that doesn't evaporate in the wake of personal sin before a God who is a consuming fire? Answer, the blood of Jesus the answer is the gospel. We draw near with a true heart. Our affections are involved, but there's truth involved. We approach God saying, I am a sinner. I am a sinner, and I only come because of Jesus. See, the gospel 
motivates us to enter God's presence. And the gospel motivates us to live with one another in this family. And so we as the church community, as the covenant community, as the family of God, as brothers and sisters, we are motivated by the gospel to do the very things that the preacher says here. Notice he, he, he laid out the gospel and now he's going to give these commandments these let us that he mentions. And there hasn't been a lot of commandments throughout the book of Hebrews. If you know, this book has been mostly about Jesus. There are 300 plus verses in the book of Hebrews, and there are only about 35 verses that have some form of command in them. This book is about Jesus, turning our eyes to Jesus. And then once our eyes are turned to Jesus and and we behold him, then growth and transformation happens in our life. I just read it in Isaiah 65, verse 1 this morning. God says, behold me, behold me, in Hebrew, hineni, hineni, gaze upon me, gaze upon my beauty. And then we are transformed. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews has compacted the gospel again here before he gives these commandments of what he wants them to do. Now, what does he want them to do? He says here, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because God is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let us not neglect to meet together. Let us encourage one another as we see the day draw near. So we are called to draw near to God confidently with a true heart so that we can enjoy him. We're called to hold to our confession of faith, what we believe in the gospel. We're called to stir one another up to love and to good works. And we're called to continually meet together for weekly worship. And we're called to encourage one another as we see the final day drawing near. And what motivates us to do these things is the gospel. So do you see the the corporate aspect to Christianity? It's not me and Jesus. It's about being a family. It's about a community. It's about a gospel community. And what is it that stirs us up to do all of these things in gospel community? The answer is the gospel. Listen, you are going to have to fight consumerism and individuality in order to belong in a gospel community. You're going to have to fight consumerism where you come here only to get, where you want your way, where your preferences are king, where you just show up for the coffee and the music and the sermon, and then you leave and you go home and you're not involved in any other way. Just give me what I want. That's consumerism, and we all have to fight it all the time. In these verses, the preacher of Hebrews is reminding us of the corporate nature of our faith. And what is it that will get us to shatter the mirrors and become involved with one another? It's the gospel. It's seeing Jesus. It's being reminded of how good God has been to us and then reminding one another about the gospel. So are we encouraging one another here to love and good works? Are we encouraging one another to love God, to love Jesus and enjoy him? Are we encouraging one another to to love and serve one another here? Are we encouraging one another to not gossip, to stop it and say, brother, don't say that. You need to go to that guy and talk to him. Sister, don't talk about them. 
You need to go talk to them face to face. Are we doing that as a church family? Encouraging one another to not gossip, to not slander, to not complain. Are we encouraging one another to die to selfishness and to work for the good of the community and to die to our preferences? Listen, true freedom comes when you learn to die to self. Now, that just doesn't make sense, does it? Because you think freedom comes if I get my way. If I get my way in my marriage, then I'll feel free and good. True freedom, true gospel freedom comes when you die to self. The gospel should motivate us to do these things because Jesus is better. Because enjoying Jesus is better than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. We've all been there, right? We've all binged on sin and we get to the end of it and we're like, it just didn't satisfy. It did for a little bit but not long-term. Only Jesus satisfies long-term. But there are some people who will be among us in the church family that look like they belong to God's family. They look like they enjoy Jesus on the outside, but they don't. They look like, they maybe even act like Christians, but it's not real. And the preacher knows this, and that's why he reminds the the Hebrews of this again, just like he did back in chapter 6. So look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The preacher's point here is that there have always been people among the family of God that go through the motions, but they aren't true believers. They may have received the sign of baptism and gone through the membership classes. They've eaten the Lord's Supper. They sing songs every week. They've heard the word of God preached week in and week out, and they're still not born again, even though they appear to be. There are people who have heard it all. Just like the young boy in Flannery O'Connor's story. He heard the gospel from his uncle. He heard about Jesus. He heard about the resurrection. But he didn't believe it. He wasn't buying it. And what can these people expect? These people who are among the family of God. Who look like they're enjoying Jesus. But they're not really. The preacher says what they can expect is a fearful expectation of judgment. And he points out how under the old covenant, when anyone set aside the law of Moses, he's talking about a willful disobedience was punishable by death under the old covenant. Yes, God mercifully gave the nation of Israel um, a sacrificial system because they're sinners. He knew they would sin. He gave them opportunity to be made right, to be declared clean so they could come and worship him. But if someone willfully disobeyed, they set aside the law and said, it does not have any authority over my life. They willfully disobeyed and there was no fear of God and there was no brokenness and no repentance. Then they were stoned to death. And so the preacher says, if that's what life was like under the old covenant, how much more under the new? 
If someone sits in the church and they hear the gospel all the time and they receive the sign of baptism and they were sanctified, which means they were set apart, meaning they made a declaration that I belong to Jesus now. I've been sanctified. I've been set apart. I belong to him. And they've eaten the Lord's Supper, but they aren't born again. And they trample Jesus under their feet and they outrage the spirit of grace. Preacher says they can only expect a fearful judgment. He's basically saying the same thing that he said back in chapter 6 about people in the church who are not truly born again. This isn't the guy in the jungle somewhere who's never heard of Jesus. This is someone who's heard about Jesus repeatedly and they trample Jesus under their feet and they say, I'm just not buying it. And he says they can only expect a fearful judgment because they heard the truth all the time, and they willfully disobeyed. He's talking about unbelievers in these verses who are among the family of God. But just as he said back in chapter 6, he feels sure of better things for these Hebrews. He feels sure of things that belong to salvation. Look at verse 32. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened... You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God... You may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the preacher reminds the Hebrews here about what happened after they became believers. They endured intense suffering because they left Judaism behind. Everything that they had known and grown up with, they left that behind and said, we believe in Jesus now. And they endured intense suffering for it. They were persecuted for what they believed. This is just like the uncle in Flannery O'Connor's story, the one that lived in the city. He was an agnostic. He didn't believe What Mason Tarwater, his uncle, believed. He opposed him. He opposed the gospel. So too the Hebrews experienced this kind of opposition when they left Judaism for Christianity. And some of them were actually thrown in prison because they were Christians. And what happened then? Well, for some of the Hebrews, persecution meant that they stopped going to church. That's why he encouraged them in verse 25 to not neglect meeting together. Because when they saw them throwing Christians in prison, they're like, well, if I go to church, I'm telling everyone I'm a Christian and I may end up in prison. So some of them fearfully backed off. But others actually got more passionate about Jesus when persecution started. You would think that when Christians get arrested, then other Christians would keep a low profile so they don't get arrested too. But what did these Hebrews do? They went and visited their brothers and sisters in prison. And it appears that while they visited these prisoners during visiting hours, then people went and ransacked their homes. And how did the Hebrews respond? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They responded like the apostles 
in Acts chapter 5 when they were beaten for the gospel. It says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing. The Hebrews joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Answer, because of the gospel. Because they knew they had a better possession. If they were asked why they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, I think these Hebrew Christians would have responded with two words. They said, here's why. It's because of this. Because we enjoy Jesus. Because he's our treasure, not our stuff. They knew what awaited them in resurrection. Just like Mason Tarwater in Flannery O'Connor's story, whether they died poor or rich or were buried in a coffin or just rolled into the ground or cremated, they knew that resurrection awaited them. They knew that Jesus is better. And because their future was secure, the preacher tells the Hebrews not to lose their confidence when they suffer. How can they keep their confidence even as they suffered, as they were put in prison, as they lost all of their belongings? They could have confidence because, as verse 35 says, they had a great reward. They had Jesus. He was their treasure, not their homes or their retirement or their safety. Jesus was their treasure. And so what the Hebrews were in need of, and what many of us are in need of today, is endurance. We need encouragement to endure this journey as exiles in this world. We need to be stirred up by one another to endure. We need to get recalibrated with the gospel so that we can endure, so that we will not shrink back, and so that we will have faith. And what gives us, and what gives the Hebrews this confidence and this endurance and this faith? Answer, you know the answer. It's the gospel. It's the good news. As we saw several weeks ago, True believers will not shrink back because God will keep us. We will persevere to the end. We will endure to the end. But even though God will keep us, even though we will persevere to the end, we still need mutual encouragement. God uses means, the means of mutual encouragement to cause us to persevere to the end. And we get the confidence that we lack And we get the endurance that we need as we encourage one another and stir one another up to continue worshiping together each week. Some of the Hebrews had neglected meeting together on the Sabbath, so they were missing out on the very things. They were missing out on the very means of grace that God uses to encourage us and to strengthen us and to give us confidence so that we can endure suffering. The means of grace that God has given to us is the preaching of his word and prayer and the celebration of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And to to, to stay away from church means that you will miss out on the very means that God has put in place so that you can have confidence and encouragement and endurance. So understand this, Grace. The most important day of the week for Christians is the Sabbath. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's as we gather together as a gospel community that we are prepared and encouraged for that day, the final day. 
It's as we gather for corporate worship where we sing together, we pray together, we give, we serve, we celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper, we hear the word of God preached. And it's as those things happen, we are encouraged and strengthened to endure until the very end. And yes, we need this encouragement throughout the week, obviously. But we gather on Sunday because it's important. Corporate worship needs to be a priority for you. I know that coming from the pastor who has to be here on Sunday, you may think that that's self-serving. Like my ego will take a hit if you're not here. Like, oh, nobody's here. It's 30 people. No, I, I, I honestly believe this. You need to be here. I need to be here. I want this for you. I want this for me. You need this. I need this. You need to come and sing with us. You need to pray with your church family. You need to give. You need to serve. You need to hear the word of God preached every single week. I believe that you need to be here because I believe that this is what God's word is saying to us. I believe that you need to make Sunday morning worship a priority for you and your family, especially if persecution and suffering comes our way. You and I need to hear every single week that Jesus is infinitely glorious and that only he can truly satisfy us. We need to hear that every week. We need weekly encouragement to enjoy the triune God. You need to be stirred up every single week. You need gospel recalibration every week and throughout the week. You need to hear about the glory of God every single week at church so that your joy in Jesus is raised higher and higher. And when your joy in Jesus is raised higher and higher, when you enjoy Jesus, you truly enjoy him, he is mightily glorified. Listen, enjoying God is not a secondary endeavor for us. Let me say that again. Enjoying God, enjoying Jesus is not a secondary endeavor for us. You and I were made to glorify and to enjoy God. So enjoying God is central to everything that we do here at Grace. That's why our mission statement says we exist to ignite a passion, the affections in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's why we exist as a church, that we would ignite this passion. We would throw gasoline on the fire of our affections for Jesus so that every single person that walks through these doors and in this city and in the nations and people groups around the world, that they would come to glorify and to enjoy God everywhere that they go and in everything that they do. That's why we exist as a church. It's why you exist as a human being. Enjoying God is central to everything that we do here at Grace. And that's why every day there is a battle on the turf of your heart for your affections. Every single day there is a battle on the turf of your heart for your affections, for what will satisfy you, for what will bring you delight. There's a battle that takes place on the turf of your heart. Will you draw near to God with a true heart to enjoy him? That's your daily battle. 
The battle is this. Will you glorify and enjoy God today? There's a glory war going on nonstop in your heart and in my heart. Will you and I enjoy Jesus more than the fleeting pleasures of sin? Will we individually and collectively draw near to God with a true heart, admitting our sin, admitting our need of a Savior, and then delighting in Jesus? Will we do that on a daily basis? That's the glory war that's going on in our hearts 24-7. That's the battle. And that's why church community and church fellowship and mutual encouragement are incredibly important for your life and in my life. Paul Tripp says this, Awe of God must dominate my ministry because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe of God. A human being not living with functional awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged. He is off the rails trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow. He may not, and he may not even know it. When awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you are not living for God, the only other alternative is to live for yourself. So a church must turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. This means every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by awe of God. The sermon must be delivered in awe and have as its purpose to motivate awe in those who hear. Children's ministry must have as its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. The youth ministry of the church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help teens see God's glory and then name it as the thing for which they will live. Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and a myriad of self-interests that nip at their hearts. Awe of God provides that rescue. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God and to confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal for God's glory rather than their own. Missions and evangelism, too, must be awe-driven. Remember, Paul argues that this is the reason for the cross— he says that Jesus came so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. Only powerful grace can keep this awe alive. Only then can we be used to ignite that awe in others. This is what the preacher of Hebrews is aiming for in this passage. That we would be a people that we would be a church, a community, a family of brothers and sisters that stir one another up to love and to good works, to ignite awe of God in others. That we would be a people that we help people get their awe of God back. That we point them to Jesus all the time and say, Behold Him, behold Him, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord that we would be a church that reminds one another that the reward awaits and to not give up. And the reward is Jesus. 
Jesus is the reward. We get to enjoy God forever. The confession that we hold on to is Jesus. And the reason we can encourage one another as we see the day approaching is because on that day we will see Jesus, the one that we love. The better possession is Jesus. So treasure him again today. Prize him again this morning. Delight in him again this morning. Let me encourage you once again, brothers in Jesus, brothers and sisters, brothers in Jesus, brothers and sisters, enjoy Jesus again today. Draw near to him with a true heart and enjoy him. He has declared you clean, Christian. Go into his presence and enjoy him. That's what will sustain you. That will give you the endurance that you need. So encourage one another to keep treasuring Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The boy in Flannery O'Connor's story was wrong when he said, the dead don't bother with particulars. The dead are poor. You can't be any poorer than dead. He'll have to take what he gets. Wrong. For the Christian... We bother with particulars when we're dead. If Jesus is not going to be there in heaven, then I'm going to be very particular about that. The dead in Christ are not poor. We're rich. We're rich because we have Jesus. And if you're not a Christian today, repent of your sin and your rebellion against God And believe and trust in Jesus that he loved you and gave himself for you. Otherwise, you'll spend eternity in torment. Separated from the very God that you were made to enjoy. And you will be spiritually bankrupt forever. Cast out of God's presence and into everlasting torment. And I don't want that for anyone here. You were made to glorify and enjoy God. And a human being not living with functional Awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged in this life and in the next. But riches and rewards await those who trust in Jesus. The one thing for which we were created is this, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. Be encouraged to live in that today. Let's pray. Father, we know that none of this will happen unless your spirit comes and works in our hearts and opens our eyes to see the beauty of your son because we are sinners and we're captivated by 10 million things that sparkle and shine and and promise us hope and satisfaction and we're deceived all the time and we chase after other lovers and other gods and we always end up empty. So unless your spirit opens our eyes, Father, we'll keep running after other things. So come this morning and have mercy on us. Cause us to see the beauty of your son, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Do it for our joy and for the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.